0: Thank you, Jeff, for your leadership today. If he is king, then he is worthy of the loftiest expressions of our loyalty and love, as well as the simplest ones. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus, we confess that you are king. Would you be king in our hearts today as we hear your word? Would you cause our hearts to surrender and to submit to you? As we live out your word, would you cause your presence and your power to be made known more and more? We pray this in the strong and powerful and exalted name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Now we're going to continue today looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 as we walk through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You're going to find uh, verses 1 through 5 in your text, but I want you to have your Bibles open to see uh, what comes in the context immediately preceding that. So turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and we're actually going to start looking at verse 18 in just a moment. In this little section, Paul is winding up a thought that he began several chapters before. Now, if you will remember, this Corinthian church had been fighting over who was going to be the most important, the lead leader, if you will, as he began in chapter 1 to, uh, to push back against this argument. Well, today we find the conclusion of his pushback. And as we do, what I, what I want you to see today is that he's going to raise three questions that require a shift in perspective three questions that require a shift in perspective for them but also for us so that's what we're going to look at today is these three questions that he raises now perspective can be pretty important i saw this illustrated a couple of years back uh, we were new into our, our house here in Waco. My, uh, my youngest son, Luke, was a little over a year old and toddling around. And I got word one evening, one of the boys uh, shouted out pretty excitedly, there's a mouse in the house. And so that set off a grand chase, right? And so I thought, well, I'm going to be the dad and uh, show my sons how to handle uh, this mouse in the house. I got a, a Tupperware container and I thought, well, I'm going to catch that little mouse uh, and we're going to, uh, to have some fun with this thing. Uh, so the, the boys had him cornered in the laundry room and had closed the door. And so with my, uh, my little Tupperware bucket, I went in there to the door and uh, Luke was uh, brave enough to uh, come with me for this great adventure the other somehow disappeared. I'm not sure where you boys ended up, to, ended up going. But Luke and I went to the door, uh, and I told Luke, I said, Luke, say, right here, we're going to find the mouse. We're going to find the mouse. And this little one-year-old boy said, mouse, Daddy, mouse. And I said, yes, that's right, mouse. You stay here. Daddy's going to go find the mouse. So with all of my bravery and courage, I opened up the door and started to hunt in the laundry room for that mouse. I was going to trap him. And behind me, I heard Luke say, mouse, mouse. And I said, yes, Luke, I'm looking for the mouse. I'm going to find the mouse. And I continued to hunt and look around on the floor and tried to see if there was any evidence. And Luke said again, mouse, mouse, daddy, with a little more uh, intensity this time. And I said, yes, Luke, stay right there. I'm going to find the mouse, and we're going to show your brother, so stay right there. And he said, mouse, daddy, mouse. And so I turned around, and my little one-year-old was pointing up to the top of the door. And so I turned, and I looked up at the top of the door, and sure enough, there was a creature there, but not a mouse. Some of you know that here in Waco, we have tree rats. I did not know what a tree rat was until one invaded my house. And I'm going to tell you that with that little shift in perspective, all of my courage evaded me. (laughs) And just like all of you would have, I dropped that bucket and I ran out the door and slammed it behind me. A little Tupperware bucket wasn't going to do to, uh, to fight that little mouse. A shift in perspective can change everything, everything. And, and, and so what Paul's going to do with his church is say, hey, you've got you to think differently about this. We've got to shift your perspective here because when we do, there are some big implications. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The first question that he's going to, to raise for these people is the question, whom does God trust to manage? whom does God trust to manage? Remember, they've been arguing over who was going to be the lead leader, who was uh, most significant in the church. And so he says, whom does God trust to manage? Let me just read this briefly for you and then point out uh, how this question and the shift of perspective with it begins to have some significant impact. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. No one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. These people had been asking the question, who's going to manage this church? Who's going to lead? And they had their competing leaders. And Paul says, look. The bottom line answer here is not Paul or Apollos. The one who is supposed to manage is all of you. You, church, are supposed to manage what's happening. And the fact that you're competing over who's going to be the lead leader betrays that you're not even seeing the question rightly. God has made you, you, to manage And we individual leaders, Paul will say, we are servants. Now, Paul creates a contrast here, using himself as the example. Because in the very next verse, and you'll see this in your notes, he'll say, a person should consider us. And now he's talking about himself and Apollos and Cephas, or Peter. He's talking about themselves. They should see us as servants of Christ. It's the word slave. He'd already used the picture of a a day laborer out in the field to describe himself and Apollos and Peter. We are day laborers. He says we're just servants. But then he goes on and he says, but not just servants, managers. We are managers of God's mysteries. Now managers in the the Greek household was the, the chief of the house. It was the chief of staff for the wealthy land owner. The, the manager would handle the finances, the purchasing, the personnel decisions. The manager was the one whom everybody had to look to in these ancient Greece households. The manager was the top of the stack. And so what Paul says is, look, we, we us leaders, we are like servants, day laborers. And at the very same time, we're like the chief of the household. How is it possible that these two realities could be held together? He says, look, we belong to Christ. And Christ is the one who is over all. But here's where this thing gets pretty uh, pretty exciting. Because all of this at this point has been about Paul and about Apollos and about Cephas. But what he just drove to here was not that he, Paul, was the manager or that Apollos was the manager. He says in verse 23... Everything is yours. He makes this about the people themselves. He makes this about us, you and me. The thing that is true of Paul being a slave and a manager at the same time, the bottom of the rung and the top of the rung at the same time, is true of you and me. You know how I know that? If you flip over to chapter 6, he's going to say to the same church, He's going to help them uh, see themselves in this different light to understand what it means for him to say that everything is yours. And he applies it in a particular way. Chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Don't you know that we, and now he's talking about the whole church, we will judge the angels? Not to mention the ordinary matters. Paul says to these people later on, he says, Look, the reason why I can say everything is yours is because you belong to Christ. And what Christ did in making you his own possession was to set up a time when you, you and me, people who are followers of Christ, who are clinging to Jesus as our King, we someday will judge the angels. This is not the perspective that we tend to think about ourselves, right? We tend to think about ourselves as uh, uh, weak uh, vessels, creatures that uh, are just sort of stumbling through this life. And as best we're trying to do is to follow Jesus, or maybe, uh, maybe we don't even care about Jesus. But, but what Paul says is, look, for, for those of you that, that, that God has a vision of you, and when Jesus speaks into your life, his vision for you is that he would elevate you up to this position where even the angels have to answer to you for their decisions. You, church, will judge the angels. Whom does God trust to manage all of this created world? It's you and me. And why? Well, to another church. Paul would, would teach this further later on. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says to that Ephesian church something that is lying behind what he's been teaching this Corinthian church. And he says to them, you church are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That Jesus who we will celebrate next week as risen from the dead and ascended on high to rule and to reign over all of creation. You who cling to him in faith, are already positioned with him, seated now with Christ in the heavenlies, him as the the promise, the first fruit, the hope, so that we now look forward to it, knowing that our destination is secure and that our status right now is that of managers. Those who are seated with Christ ruling, judging over all of this world, even the angels. See, he shifts their perspective. They've been arguing over who's going to lead in their church. And Paul says, look, guys, you're going to lead in the heavens. So why are you fighting over something so small and insignificant? And we, too, have a tendency to Fight over the small and insignificant, we too have a tendency to see ourselves and the people around us as little, as small, as not mattering. C.S. Lewis, the scholar and teacher, many of you will be familiar with him, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he writes this about humanity. He says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Lewis understood that shift in perspective. It's a shift in perspective that, that all of us need to wrestle with, that if Christ has called you to saving faith, if he's called you into a new relationship with him, if you have staked your eternity on his power and his mercy and his forgiveness, he has not died for you merely to save you from sin. He has died for you to exalt you to this high position, not for your glory, but for his own. And so, act like those managers seated with Christ in the heavenly. Handle your ordinary business with that supernatural perspective. That means that there's no room for selfishness or pettiness. There's, there's no room for the kind of power grabbing and, and image building that is so common in our culture. The number of followers you have on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram is not the way to measure whether or not you are being a faithful manager of God. You are seated with him and so manage like him. That, that helps us to begin to think about the next question that's raised here by Paul. The next question that requires a a shift in perspective, if the first question is whom does God trust to manage, and the answer is all of us, then the second question becomes even more poignant. What does God measure in managers? If we are all managers and it's seated with him in the heavenlies, what does he measure in us? What is he looking for? We'll now look at verse 1 of chapter 4. A person should consider us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of God's mystery. In this regard, it is expected of managers that each one of them be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. So Paul now turns again to himself and using himself as the example says, okay, we are managers of God's mysteries And then he poses this question for us as he's walking through. Uh, What is it that God measures in managers? And his answer is in the simple word, faithful. It is required that managers be found faithful. It's a powerful and, and important word in the Greek language, Because while we might think about faithful just in terms of doing a good job, uh, someone who is entrusted to a position must do a good job, what is is true in the case for the Greek language is that there's actually two significant connotations for that same word. Not only is it faithfulness in terms of being a good steward or, or doing a good job, but it is also connoted in that same word that that manager must be trustworthy. You must Be worthy of the trust that the the person who is investing this position on you is giving. How is it that managers are evaluated? Us managers seated with Christ, we are evaluated based on this faithfulness. Think about it this way. If, if, If you have the experience of being a parent you get to, to experience one of the greatest uh, greatest realities of management ever. This little life is entrusted to you, and every bit of that life from the very beginning is in your hands. When they eat, when they sleep, uh, their, uh, their, their health is, is your responsibility. But something happens as they get older. You, you at first, are able to, to control and manage all these realities, but as that child gets older more and more of that responsibility comes upon themselves. At least it's supposed to. You want them to be able to dress themselves and feed themselves. It's cute for a little toddler to play with his food. It's just embarrassing if it's a teenager. And so you don't want that to happen. As they get older, your your responsibility as a parent remains. You You are to be faithful in stewarding this life. But there's a new dynamic as that child becomes older. Now, a lot of parents can, uh, can experience some, some guilt and frustration over this because it's at that point that sometimes children will begin to push away as they, uh, they exert their own independence and will. Uh, children can, can begin to choose things contrary to what their parents have taught them. They can choose a life that's very different than what, what they have seen in their parents. Sometimes even, uh, even siblings within the same family can end up heading in two very different directions. Same parenting, same values, and yet two very different outcomes with the children. And a lot of parents, when they look at that, will, will struggle. They'll feel guilty. They'll ask, well, What did I do wrong? Um, maybe I should have done more, or uh, What could it have been that, I've, that, was, uh, that was my fault in all of this? Well, the truth of the matter is that, that when God looks at a parent, and when God evaluates a parent's life, he's evaluating that parenting not based on the outcome of the children, but on the faithfulness of the parent. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? That's a, a quote for some of you who know some other people around this area. The, 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 the way that God evaluates is not on the outcome of the children's behavior but rather on the faithfulness of the parent. In the same way, in every sphere of life that God has entrusted to you, in your work, in your marriage, in your relationship with your neighbors, your grandkids, every sphere of your life, the question that is being asked by this eternal Father about you is, was he or she faithful, trustworthy, now, it's not usually the question that we think about, and Paul knows that. He, he says, even in this next segment, that he says, I don't even evaluate myself. He recognizes that, uh, that there are others who are looking at his work and saying, it's not good enough. But yet, because Paul understands that he's evaluated by his faithfulness, by his Father, he is free from the criticism of human evaluators. He doesn't need the praise of other human beings. He's set free from that because he knows that the one who evaluates him will evaluate based on his faithfulness. And he also knows that even his personal feelings about his work don't give him assurance in and of itself. He says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but catch this, it's an important truth, but I am not justified by this. He's not even evaluating himself. He doesn't let other human people evaluate him, nor is he saying, my own assessment is is what I'm counting on. He's not looking at the body of his work and saying, well, I feel pretty good about this and thinking, well, that must mean God thinks the same thing. No, no. The shift in perspective that Paul points us to, that that all of us must wrestle with, is that when we think about our lives, every aspect of it, there is one judge, one evaluator, one who looks at us, and his question is not, how successful were your kids? His question is not, how well did your business do? His question is not how strong is your marriage. His question is were you faithful as much as it concerns you to live under my rule and over the areas that I've put you in responsibility for? Paul would not be pulled aside by the criticisms of those people around him nor would he allow himself a kind of false confidence that was based on his feelings. He would point to the objective declaration of God in Christ Jesus and say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His confidence was not in himself or in the approval of others, but rested solely in that declaration of God, you are mine. And so as we consider our life's work, we too must ask the question, in what Are we placing our confidence? When it comes to being evaluated, are we ready to say, Father, I've been as faithful as I know how to be? And will we look forward to that day that we see pointed to in verse 5? Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts? And then praise will come to each one from God. To whom are you looking for that praise? Is it the people around you? Is it your own sense of accomplishment? Or have you learned to see yourself seated with Christ, reigning with Him, and therefore evaluated by that one voice, the voice of the Father who says, those who belong to my Son are safe. There is no condemnation for them. Run to Him. Build your life On Him. Let's pray. We have confessed Jesus as our eternal King. So we ask, Would you now examine our hearts? And see if that confession is true all the way through us. We ask now, Father, search us and know us. Would you reveal any place where we have sought the approval and praise of others, or have built our confidence on our own feelings? as opposed to your sure and declared word. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Help us to rule and manage our lives the way that Jesus rules and manages this world. Show your goodness and your power and your mercy in and through us. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and King, amen.